May we take our Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Deuteronomy, the 16th chapter, verse 21. Thou shalt not plant thee a grove of any tree near unto the altar of the Lord thy God, which thou shalt make thee. Neither shalt thou set thee up any image which the Lord thy God hateth. I have been preaching to you from the book of Deuteronomy since sometime in November when we came back from Korea. And I turn to the book because it was in Deuteronomy that we have this great emphasis upon the orphans and the fatherless and the widows and all that God instructs us as his people to do in looking after this aspect of our relationship to one another. But I also turn to the book of Deuteronomy because it is the fifth book of Moses. And Moses is especially under assault today. This past week, uh, Lewis Castles of the United Press International put one of his stories out across the country that the uh, churches were going to work for the study of the Bible in the schools. And this we learned down in Miami Beach that the new president of the National Council would make one of the main undertakings of the uh, National Council of Churches. And here is this great group that opposes the reading and the offering of prayers in the public schools, the reading of the Bible. They're against that. But now they've moved in to tell us that we should take the Bible into the public schools and study it as a religious book. And tax funds are used, of course, to pay the salaries of the teachers and other things in connection with it. But what happens is that when they move in to teach the Bible, they bring in, in their studies and in their various uh, syllabi, the whole higher critical assault upon Moses and upon the Bible. And this is what happened in the state of Washington, out there in the trial, which we went out and had a party in, and the judge gave the decision to those in the university who are introducing these great attacks upon the Bible. So through public funds and under the slogan of studying the Bible as literature, or as history, the liberals then have such control that they're able to introduce these assaults upon Moses. Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, Jesus Christ to the contrary. David didn't write the Psalms, regardless of what Christ may have said about David or how many of David's Psalms Christ quoted. Moses and David, and then we come to Daniel, the great prophet of eschatology, and Daniel didn't write his book either. 
And we now are confronted with this tremendous assault in the educational world in which the liberals have said, here's an open door to go into our public schools, into our universities, have the Bible taught as literature, and then when you study it as literature, you get back into the setting and the context and the historical circumstances in which it was produced, and they bring forward the higher critical assault upon the Bible as the so-called circumstances in which it was produced. So I turn to Moses, and you find in Moses these tremendous texts that have to do with the children, that have to do with the unity of the people of God. They're a peculiar people. That have to do with the obedience of the people of God. And God, through Moses, has given us the law. And then he's given us all these other blessed regulations that relate to that law. And so we've turned to text after text and passage after passage to show you people that there's no difference between Moses and between Christ. And there's no difference between this Old Testament and this New Testament. And we do not have some kind of a progressive evolutionary development of a religious experience. We have a divine revelation which has been handed down to us by the Almighty God. And the God of Genesis 1 is the same God of Sinai. And the God of Sinai is the same God of Elijah and the prophets of Baal when he dealt with them. And the God of Elijah is the same God of Daniel who stopped the mouths of the lions. And the God of Daniel is the same God as the one who sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be born of the virgin. He's the same God. And the God of Genesis 1 is the God of Revelation 22 with a holy city coming down from God out of heaven. There is only one God in this book. And he is the same God from beginning to end. And furthermore, this one true and living God who's presented himself to us in this book is our Redeemer. Salvation is of the Lord. And he's the one who's come to us in the person of Jesus Christ that we might have pardon for sin and fellowship with the redeemed and the blessed hope that there will be a return in the heavens of this risen Christ to raise the dead. This is the kind of people we are. This is the kind of people that Moses led out of Egypt. They were the redeemed of the Lord. And this is the kind of people to whom God has given a commission. You go and preach this message to all creatures to the ends of the earth. And you let everybody know everything that I've revealed unto you. And Moses said the things I've given to you are for you and to your children. And you make sure your children get them and your children understand them. And your children walk in the commandments of our God. Now apart of all that Moses has to say is this tremendous emphasis upon worship. Worship. We are to worship the Lord our God. 
Now we're in church just now. You people have come to church this morning. It's Sunday. You got up and said, well, I'm going to go to church today. And so you arrived. And we're here today. But beloved, I want to say to you, it's not just your sitting in these pews that's important. It's not just the fact that you've got into the habit of coming on Sundays or you drive a great distance. Beloved, you have come here to engage in a peculiar and a special exercise. You can go to any high school auditorium you want to. You can go to any assembly of the Rotary Club you want to. You can go to any political gathering you want to and sit around with men and sing songs and somebody can get up and pray if you want to, but that's not what you're doing here. When you come into this place as we are here at the present moment, we are here for the solemn and sacred purpose of worshiping our God. This is a worship service. We are assembled here in order that we might bring to our God unitedly the devotion of our hearts and the praise of our lips and that we might attend to a form of worship with each other which we believe will sanctify our hearts and which will be pleasing to the living God. You haven't come over here for some social exercise. You haven't come over here for some hours of entertainment. You haven't come over here for any other purpose than to worship the living and the true God. And my beloved, what a solemn and blessed privilege it is. But that worship must be in accordance with the orders and with the commandments and with the revelation that God has given to us. Now this text of ours deals with this whole question. Notice what Moses said. Thou shalt not plant thee a grove of any trees near unto the altar of the Lord thy God, which thou shalt make thee. Moses said, when you go into the land and you set up your little altars here, in which you'll carry on these sacrifices in accordance with the lamb and the blood, all of which represents the sacrifice of Christ, don't you put any trees around it. Don't you plant any trees around that altar. Don't you plant any trees near that altar. Just forget about the trees. And the reason for that was that all the pagans and all the heathen and all of those with their false gospels and their false religions they went up to the top of the hills and they laid out their little plans of altars and then they planted trees around them. And they called them groves. Groves. They had groves of trees. And God says, Moses, you tell the children of Israel that when they get in there and erect, set up their little altars, don't put any trees around them. Don't let your place of worship, don't let the way you carry on in obedience to me in any way look like theirs, correspond to theirs, or be like theirs. Don't you plant any trees around your altars. They're going to have trees and all these things on the top of the mountains around their altars. 
Now you turn with me and let's just run through some of these passages of the Old Testament and see how important this matter was as we unfold it. Turn over to Judges chapter 3. And in the seventh verse of the third chapter of Judges. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served Balaam and the groves. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 14. 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 15 and 23. Right through that section you have a, a very interesting development in this whole area. Chapter 14, verse 15. For the Lord shall smite Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and he shall root up Israel out of this good land, which he gave to their fathers, and shall scatter them beyond the river, because they have made their groves, provoking the Lord to anger. Oh, we come over into this great passage in Kings, and here Moses says, Don't you build any trees around your altars, and don't you make any groves like this. And then we come on down here into the days of the kings, and we find that Israel did plant trees, and Israel did make her groves. And then we read that the Lord shall smite Israel as a reed is shaken. And then turn down to the verse 22 and verse 23. And Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy. With their sins, which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. For they also built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. Now we turn over to chapter 16, verse 33. 1 Kings chapter 16, 33. And let me begin reading with verse 32. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Beloved, it is a serious thing to corrupt the worship of God. It is a serious thing to take the worship of God and like it in it in any way to the worship of men in their darkness and in their superstitions. It is a serious offense against God to do it. And beloved, I want to say to you right now that you and I are living in an hour when the Christian people need to stop and take stock of their worship. And they must worship God according to the rules and the commandments that he's laid down. And they must be certain that we do not provoke the Lord to anger by the sin and the disobedience that's involved in the worship of the living God. Now here in Moses' text, Moses says, Thou shalt not 
Pull a grove of trees around your altar. And then in the days of Judges they did it and they were like the other groves. In the days of Ahab they did it and they were like the other groves. And Ahab built his groves and planted his trees and he caused Israel to sin. Beloved, God guards and protects his house of worship. And God wants his people to worship him according to his desire and in the manner in which he has laid down for us to come to him. You have these references to idols. They had their groves, idols. He said, I want you to get mixed up with idols. I want you to have anything to do with these idols. I want you to turn with me to some of these other great passages and these other sections that that deal with these matters of the of the uh, idols and in the book of the Psalms you have several of these Psalms that touch upon this matter but will you turn please to Psalm 115 and I want you to begin reading with the first verse with me as we look down through it not unto us O Lord Lord we're not the ones going to figure out how we ought to worship thee it's not for us to set up our ideas Not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. The heathen comes around, come around to these people, and they say, Hey, you haven't got any God, have you? You don't have any trees on your mountain out there? All you got's a little altar you fixed up here, but look at us. We got a mountain out here, we got a great big platform, a big design, we got a court, we got all this thing laid out, and look how the trees have grown. God, God bless the trees. We got the tallest trees up here on the mountains. Where is your God? Our God isn't up on top of that mountain. Our God isn't in the midst of those trees. Our God's in heaven. Our God's in heaven. And here was the conflict. Here was the conflict. And it finally got to the place where the children of Israel said, Oh, we're weary of telling everybody our God's in heaven. Let's plant some trees. Let's have some big tall trees. Let's let the trees grow up around our altars and let's just have groves and we'll just be like the heathen. And beloved, the one thing that's been the danger of God's people all these centuries is that God's people want to be like the heathen. God's people want to be like the world. God's people want to conform their worship and their approach to God to the way everybody else is seeming to do it. And that's our trouble. And it was our trouble then, it's our trouble today. Now look at the rest of this psalm. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. 
neither speak they through their mouths. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. Beloved, if you want to build a grove over here, have an idol up there, you want to make it, you want to fix it up for yourself, you'll be just like that. You'll be just like it. Don't you build groves and don't you set up idols. You have to make the idols and you have to plant the groves. All that I've asked you to do is to have a little altar out of some stones that you haven't hewn, you haven't cut them. Just take a little stone, pick them up, lay in there and have a little altar. Make your little sacrifice on the blood. And it's the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. That's all they had. Just the blood that made an atonement for the soul. This past week there came out this financial journal called Barons and it had the feature story on the front cover the gospel of revolution and said the World Council of the Churches was teaching preaching revolution. And I got down through it and of course this financial journal was completely repudiating everything that happened over in Geneva in July by the World Council. We were over there, you know, saying it was all in, on the communist side and that the ideas had been rejected by President Truman and by the Congress. And then they came down to this great section where they deal with poverty and the poor of the earth. And they took issue with them who blamed the men and the capitalistic world for having their money and they used the general leftist ar arguments. And this is what they came up with. And I was so interested and pleased to see it in an article like this because nobody ever tells you this. They said that the world was poor and so much of the world was poor because of the superstitions which men have gathered to themselves. And they said that if the peoples of the world had the right kind of knowledge and attitude toward these religious things, they wouldn't be in such economic privations. And then they mentioned the monkeys of India. The monkeys of India. Every time I go to India, and I've been out there so many times, they've got them everywhere. The monkeys are just everywhere, and they just run everywhere. And what happens? They run down, eat up the grain. Believe me, if you don't lock up what you've got at night, they'll come in your house and take it out of your icebox. Of course, they don't have iceboxes out there, but they come, and, they come in and get it. Monkeys, 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 monkeys. They're everywhere, but they're sacred. Sacred. And just a few weeks ago, you know, the queen, uh, the uh, prime minister, she's a, uh, a lady. She decided that they'd try to do something about these monkeys. And she got the whole religious world stirred up on her, so she's had to leave the monkeys alone. And the same way with the sacred cows. Oh, beloved, these cows of India, you ought to go to India to see what it's like. They're just everywhere on the streets. They just walk in. They want to walk in your front door. They come. You don't dare stop them. And when they get in the middle of the street, you don't dare do anything. You've got to wait till they move. They're sacred. You just don't dare touch these cows. And here are the sacred cows, and here are the sacred monkeys, and they can eat up more grain than our ships can carry over there. And what it amounts to is that we're putting tons and tons and tons of wheat and grain to help India. But all we're doing is helping the monkeys. Let me read you this. Come back to this Psalm 115. Look at it, please. 
They have hands, but they handle not. They have uh, eyes, but they see not. They that make them are like unto them. So is every one that trusteth in them. And beloved, the remedy for the poverty of this world is to give men the gospel of Jesus Christ so they'll get rid of their sacred monkeys. To give men the gospel of Jesus Christ so they'll get rid of their sacred cows. To give men the gospel of Jesus Christ which cleans them up and straightens them up and gives them the trust of the living God and then the light of God comes down and I want to tell you beloved from this pulpit there's a closest possible relationship between economic welfare and economic security and your faith in God that relationship is here and Moses is telling the children of Israel when you have your little altars out here and you get in that country and you take some of these stones now don't cut the stone don't put your hands on them they take stones and they cut them and they dress them up and they put eyes in them and they put noses on them and they put all these things you just take the rough stones out of the bottom of the Jordan River pick up some stones make yourself a little altar and then all you do is put that lamb on there and put that blood on there that's all I want that's all I want just the blood of that lamb but when you stay in the country, they're going to say, my, aren't they a bunch of peculiar people? Look what we've got. We've got trees. We've got idols. We've got all these wonderful things that everybody can see. And we better, better get like them. And the church, the Lord's people through the years, the Lord comes and speaks to them and straightens them out. And they move along. And the first thing you know, they've got some more idols they're building. The first thing you know, they want to be like the rest of the world about us. And the first thing you know, they've lost their peculiar pilgrim character as we move through this old world as a witness to Jesus Christ and to the saving redemption which he has for the souls of men. What amazes me is that this financial journal could comment about it and you don't read about it anywhere else. Jesus Christ said, you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and I'll take care of the monkeys for you, I'll take care of the cows for you, and all these things will be added unto you. And that is the promise of the living God. And as we turn from the gospel in this land, and as we turn from the light that God has given us in his revelation in this land, we're going to have more economic troubles in our own country. My, if I could get that through to some of these hard-headed businessmen in this country to let them know that there's a relationship between God and these things because there is. And Moses talking about it when he says, don't you build any groves out here. Don't you put up anything like that. You just let it be simple so the Lord will bless you. The Lord will take care of it. The minute you start imitating them, the minute you start working on their basis, on their platform, on their schedule, you're over in the field of idolatry and the hatred and the wrath of God was kindled against them. And beloved, when you come to worship, come and worship in a place where the word's preached and where there's purity of association and where men are honoring the commandments of God. God bless you people who drove 50 miles to get in here today to worship in a place where we're not unequally yoked up with apostates. 
God bless you people who aren't ashamed to be a, uh, in a Bible Presbyterian church and the pulpit of this church is preaching identically the same thing that the pulpit of the Bible Presbyterian church is teaching down here in Virginia and down here in Maryland. And the pulpit of this church is teaching the same thing as the Calvary Bible Presbyterian Church of Seattle or the First Bible Presbyterian Church of Tacoma. Wherever you go across this country, every Bible Presbyterian church has in it a man who is bound by ordination vows to this Westminster Confession and he's bound, thank God, to the Bible as the Word of God. And we're seeking to maintain the purity and the integrity of the church's confession. And when you walk in that front door to sit in this church, you're sitting here where a great Bible is before us and a confession under that scripture holds up that testimony and you come in and you sit down with others who are going to worship God in truth and you're going to worship God in spirit and you're going to worship God and you can go from this place feeling that you've been cleansed that you've been in the presence of a service in which the worship of the living God has not been conducted with a lot of green trees growing up around on the mountains on the sides of it. Nothing like that. Purity of worship, integrity of faith, loyalty to the commandments. These are the things which must lay themselves upon the hearts and the consciences of men who would worship the living and the true God. But don't think you've done anything. Some of you folks who've driven 60 miles to get here today, that's not very far. The Pilgrim Fathers left the old world and came across the North Atlantic with its storms and its disasters to set up some worship here in this country where they'd be free. They did it that they might have worship. They did it that they might have the freedom to come and to associate themselves. And if they could do it in their day, we can do it in our day to preserve and maintain a fellowship which is pleasing to the living and the true God. I mentioned yesterday, and I'll take just a few moments now, that down in Winston-Salem, North Carolina today, there's a great event taking place. The papers won't report it. But it's going to be a great celebration in heaven because of it. There's a young leader there, the name of David R. Jones. He's been reared in the Moravian church. He's been educated in the Moravian schools. He's a graduate of the Moravian Theological Seminary. Their Antioch College in their seminary. And this man has seen all this false worship and all this modernism and all this ecumenism come into his church and come into his church. His hearts and souls have been troubled by it. Last summer he and his wife came to Cape May and we sat there and talked and talked and he said, Dr. McIntyre, I'm going to have to get out and preserve the Moravian faith. I can't go with them. They're going in, they're moving everything, it's taking everything into this great world body, this great world church, and I've got to step out. And I said to the Lord, bless you, brother. And then the other week when I was down there at a great rally, he was there and thrilled his wife. They'd made their decision. He says, on January 1st, I'm going to make my, I'm going to make my announcement. And on January 1st, he read his statement to his congregation. I remember when I read my statement to you way back there years ago. He read his statement. And he says, I can't stay in the communion of this fellowship anymore. 
There's too much unbelief in it. There's too much modernism in it. The whole thing is being taken into this great world church and he says, I can't stay here. He says, I'm going to have to step out. And he announced that he was going to form a continuing Moravian church. Here's your first break among the Moravians in this country. No sooner did he make his announcement from that pulpit that he had these intentions than the board that's over them, their presbyteries they called, they met and they said, well now he hasn't renounced our jurisdiction, he's just getting out of this church and we see the way he's moving, but we're not going to give him any chance. We'll depose him today. So they deposed him, they threw him out, everything. But today, according to his, is the last Sunday he's preaching in that pulpit. Right now he's preaching. And when he finishes there, he's going to invite his church to come with him. And they're going to step out. They're going over somewhere else. He's going to call his church the Bible Moravian Church. The Bible Moravian Church. Oh, beloved, when I see this man taking this stand, and it's just the obedience to Christ, it's worship, it's cleanliness, it's purity once. And I want everybody in this church and everybody to listen to me on the radio to covenant with me to pray for that man because this is history. This man's doing exactly what Count Zinzendorf did when he took his stand and was the father of the Moravian movement which has been such a blessing to the Christian church. But this man has made the break. He's making the step. He's making it alone. His wife's standing with him. And he says, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going to preserve the faith of our fathers. And we'll preserve the Moravian order of worship. And we'll build a church. And I talked to him on the phone yesterday afternoon. He says, Dr. McIntyre, we're so free. We're so happy. And he says, the people are so free. And he says, some of our elders and some of our leaders have already made their decisions to go. And we're having a revival. He says, we're going out. We're going out. And I says to him, I says, would you like to have me come down for a rally? He says, yes. I says, we'll come down, have a big rally, and take up a collection for you. I can take collections. We'll go down there and meet that brother. And then I plan to bring him up here and put him on a network of stations and let the whole world hear what this man has done. Purity of worship, preserving that faith. We're living in these kind of days, beloved. And yesterday, our presbytery sent him a telegram. I hope he got it to read to his people today. There wasn't anybody to send telegrams like this when we took our stand. But there's some of us up the road a little further, and this is what we sent him yesterday. The Presbytery of New Jersey of the Bible Presbyterian Church in session January 14th in the Bioparitian Church of Audubon, New Jersey. Thanks, God, for your courage. Historic and faithful stand and separation for the faith of our fathers. Your step of faith, like ours earlier in the battle, marks the beginning of another spirit-filled movement to preserve a true spiritual church in the Moravian succession, faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ. The apostasy from the word affects so many of our denominations today. You will find God's promise, 2 Corinthians 6, 17, 7, 1, to be more than fulfilled. May many of your people stand with you, counting all loss for the sake of his gospel, his reproaches, and his glory. We welcome you into the 20th century Reformation movement. 
When our presbytery was in session yesterday, we also took action congratulating these Presbyterian laymen who've had the courage to spend thousands of dollars to put these great ads in these papers all over the country, telling the people that the new confession which they're now adopting lays aside the Bible as the inspired and infallible Word of God. May I read to you now, first the resolution directed to the layman. The New Jersey Presbytery of the Bible Presbyterian Church meeting in Audubon, New Jersey, rejoices in the appearance of the large advertisements placed in the public press by the Presbyterian Lay Committee, Incorporated. These ads alert not only Presbyterians but all Christians of the country to the rejection of the Holy Scriptures as the inspired and infallible Word of God by the Confession of 1967. The emphasis of these ads on, quote, words of men or the infallible word of God brings before the churches the apostasy of the faith in our day as represented in the National Council of Churches and the churches would support such revolutionary departure from the divine revelation. This presbytery thanks God for his spirit who inspired such a testimony as the one these laymans have given in their ads to his word. This presbytery desires the layman to know of our gratitude and prayers for them. It is so clearly evident that the United Presbyterian Church is deserting and rejecting its true biblical and reformed foundation. This presbytery invites our brethren and all other believers in the United Presbyterian Church to come with us in the Bible Presbyterian Church, which in 1937 established a spiritual succession by maintaining the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms and the same ordination vows which support the Holy Scriptures and the system of doctrine. We believe that the Holy Spirit guided in the establishment of this Presbyterian Church in 1937 with the inclusion of the word Bible before the word Presbyterian, since this is the emphasis of the current ads and the great issue of the 20th century, the preservation of a church faithful to the Holy Scriptures. Then one further resolution, the Presbytery of New Jersey of the Bible Presbyterian Church believes that the year 1967 is the most important in Presbyterian history since our forefathers came to the New World. The abandonment of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms as the binding standard of doctrine and the rejection of the Bible as the inspired and infallible Word of God brings to an end the United Presbyterian Church as a confessional church. And this abandonment of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechism confirms the judicial apostasy of 1936. This presbytery therefore calls upon all our churches and all our people to make special effort to reach the faithful people who are still in this denomination and call them out in obedience to the word of God. Finally, we ask our churches to pray for and to be represented in the special general synod to be held in Portland, Oregon, the last of May, concurrent with the General Assembly of the United Presbyterian Church. In the hour of the great collapse of the United Presbyterian Church, the Bible Presbyterian Church shall be standing by 
holding forth the banner of the historic Christian faith. Beloved, we have our altars, and we're not going to plant ecumenical trees around them. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we thank thee for this blessed gospel. We thank thee for the great counsel that Moses gave to the children of Israel. That their worship was to be clean, their worship was to be pure, their worship was to be obedience to God. Father, we thank thee that thou hast called us out that we might have such a fellowship and such a worship among the people of God. Bring us close to thy truth. Hold our hands, Lord, and guide us carefully. And may we walk in these dark days in ways which are pleasing to God, our Savior. Now, Father, we pray for those who are here, oh, that some of them will turn and get out of this great apostasy. For Christ's sake, amen.